This morning we're going to start a brand new series after having just come through Easter and finished up Easter. But to think about maybe what happened immediately following Easter so many years ago, right? There's a couple of ways we might think about this. Uh, we might think about it as like the immediate after effects of the first Easter, right? So we're going to spend some time discussing that, what it means. Maybe it's more like this. Maybe it is the, the very first things the church began to do. And, and let me explain a little bit about, about the church. There's this idea of the historic in, institution, if you will, of ecclesiology or the, the, the church, right? But there's a spiritual reality that everyone who was born again is the church. And that becomes really key. As a matter of fact, by the way, you might already go, wait, born again, what do you mean? Those who are believing in Jesus Christ are born of the Spirit and therefore part of the church. And so we have the recorded facts that happened immediately following the death, uh, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so you can look at it one way as saying, what's the immediate after effect of Easter? You can look at it also as what's the very first things that God was doing in his church, which is uninterrupted until now, right? This is the same uh, time that we're in now as after that very first Easter morning. So I'm going to read this morning uh, with you. Hopefully, if you brought a Bible, if you didn't, grab one off the chair row. If you didn't, no, no guilt there. Uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 12. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus had began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them con many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go to heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, as we always do, for God's wisdom and inspiration as we consider his word. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for new days and new opportunities to worship you and to be saved by you, to be redeemed. Father God, for the 
opportunity to gather together with your people to sing your praises. We give you thanks. We bring you glory that you are due. And we pray, Father, this morning that as we come in from our lives and maybe the anxieties of the world or whatever we've been facing this week or the joys, that we would really just, you know, be at peace before you and we'd be listening for your voice, that you would teach us. Indeed, Father, we confess that we are believers of your word and therefore we believe that your spirit dwells in us and through us. And so this morning we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher that you would rend our hearts onto the purposes of Jesus Christ, that you would reform our minds that we might more fully understand the glory of the gospel. And all this to the glory of the Father who does all things in this time. May you be glorified. Have your way with us this morning. Do your work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into this new, it's a book study, the book of Acts. I wanted to talk a little bit about the beginning and beginning again. As a matter of fact, I, the, just thinking this through, right, the very first thing is, if you notice it in verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, right? And that should already raise a question like, what, what other book? There's something about the, the, uh, the book of Acts that's powerful because it's, the, it's this first moment of independent dependence of the apostles, right? You may already know this, but there's this reality that Luke and Acts are linked, the two texts, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And here we have the author saying, in the former book, Theophilus, what I, I wrote to you before, right? And so we should, in our minds, connect those two stories. As a matter of fact, those two witnesses he says that, I wrote down, this blows me away, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Do you see it in the Word? In my former book, I wrote down everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, you, you read the Bible, the, uh, and you say, that's it. That's what God did. That, that happened. Uh, but the apostles' testimony here at the beginning of the book of Acts is that was the beginning. The entire book of Luke was the beginning of what Jesus began to do and what he began to teach, right? So we have a couple different things there right away about how Jesus models behavior and expects behavior from us. Neither of those two are separate, right? They're, they're together, what Jesus does and he teaches. Many times in our life we'll say, well, well you know, um, I want to be like Jesus, but we don't want to be obedient to Jesus. We don't, want to, we don't want to do what he says. We want to be like he is. Well, this is the beginning of what he did and taught, according to the author of Acts. Many people will call the, uh, the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, right? The Apostles are just those who are sent out. So if I can demystify language, it means those who are sent, right? Apostles. And um, it says... Uh, many people think it's the Acts of the Apostles, but now um, I wanted to, uh, to say a little bit about who they are, because if we flip back, and you don't have to, I won't do this a lot today, but there's, I'm going to do it right now in, oh, I got the wrong marker, Luke 24, 33, in the story about the, the witness, uh, it says, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together. 
And this was the witness from last week who talked about the Emmaus Road, right? After they broke the bread, they ran back to tell the 11. Well, the 11 are the apostles, right? Those who are accounted, and we'll have an accounting for them here in Acts. And so the apostles are on one side a unique group of people who God had uh, called and equipped and placed in particular places for strategic ministry. But in a broader sense, it becomes about the, the disciples and the church as well. So it's the acts of the apostles, some would say. I did a little digging on this, and there are 80 references to the apostles um, in the New Testament. There are 28 of them in the book of Acts. So, so that was that like, like a fourth, a 25% of all the references to the apostles is found in the book of Acts, right? Second thing I would mention to you is that the apostles are, are mentioned by name, uh, referred to directly from chapter 1 of Acts all the way through chapter 16 of Acts, which I think is interesting, right? So let's hear what the word says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is the work that Jesus began to do, to show, to demonstrate to the apostles that he was indeed alive. You might remember that they were all surprised by this. Let me, let me share this with you. Look at what the word says. All he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, you might not think this is crazy, but there's a whole lot happening in that one tiny little sentence, right? The first thing is that, that um, Jesus can be taken up to heaven, but he began to teach until that day. He began to teach the disciples, and it says, after giving after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. So the instruction that Jesus is giving here is through the Spirit of God. Like he's trying to explain to the disciples, to the apostles, what's going on. Why is this a big deal? Well, get this. If you've read ahead in the book of Acts at all, the Holy Spirit falls to the church in Acts 2, right? But Jesus is teaching through the power of the Holy Spirit now they might be ready, and we're going to get to this today, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So he is instructing them, what's it say? Giving them instructions through the Holy Spirit. To who? The apostles that he chose. And so it's interesting, because there's actually three things you could consider the idea of through the Holy Spirit being applied to. It could be applied to him being taken up to heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He ascended to heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. That could be said. You can be said that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus chose his apostles. What did he say? Remember at the Last Supper? He said, but one of you will betray me. Remember they went back from Emmaus Road, he broke the bread, and they said to the 11, there's no longer 12. But most directly, that Jesus will give instruction by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, Steve Hampson and I were having a conversation. Now, I thought this was a fantastic connection. In the Gospel, I believe it is of John, Yes, it's in John chapter uh, tw 20, verse 22. It says, And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is John, now not Luke. But in Luke, it says, that he opened their minds to the Scriptures. It's not the same thing as what's happened on Mass Road. It's a different passage. It says, but he opened their minds to the Scriptures. That Jesus was imparting the Holy Spirit in small 
doses, does that make sense, in small ways to the apostles, to the disciples, they might be ready for his coming. It's the work of the Holy Spirit before the Spirit falls in the whole church. So this is very much about who Jesus chose to impart this wisdom to. But there's a, so by the way, I should already push this. So for the first blank this morning, you might want to write down that Acts is about the apostles. Because it is. <laughs> right? But check this out. I want, if you write down, I would encourage you to write it down. The Acts is about the apostles. That is, that is true. But once you write it down, I would encourage you to write over it. Acts is about the Holy Spirit. And I would like you to write it right over top of the apostles. Holy Spirit. And many of you have heard this said before. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit, right? There's almost this like fleshly tug of war. I say fleshly because I don't think it's of God. This t- tension between the book of Acts being a, a recorded history of the manifestations of the work of the early church, what they did, and a manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit, what God did or was doing. And I think that that's uh, a false tension. They're, they're both true. Again, I did some digging because I wanted to know, well, well, is it really, is, Acts, is that fair to say the Acts is about the apostles? Is it fair to say Acts is about the Holy Spirit? Well, the, the, the particular phrase, the Spirit, the Holy One, which is the way it's constructed in the, in the Greek, happens 84 times in the New Testament to my count. That was my own count because there were some other numbers out there. And 39 of them are in the book of Acts. Half the time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the book of Acts. That's amazing to me. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy One, is discussed from Acts chapter 1 until Acts chapter 28. You might recall a minute ago I said, apostles are 1 through 16. Oh, come on. There's some things happening, right? So there's this idea that it begins with the apostles, but the Holy Spirit continues to work past the apostles all the way to the 20th chapter of Acts and beyond. I mean, that's not the end of the Holy Spirit's ministry. So we have those two truths. The Acts is about the apostles, but Acts is about the Holy Spirit. I want to read it again, and I already kind of expounded this a little bit. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through what? The Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke, and here it is, about the kingdom of God. You remember that Jesus' ministry begins and ends the same way. <laughs> the kingdom of God is near. <laughs> Jesus is raised from the dead, and they're like, oh, it's time for a new message, and he teaches them about the kingdom of God. This is what it's about. This is what... Jesus is teaching his apostles about after resurrection. His message is consistent throughout. Now, this morning, I want to uh, take a, a little detour for a minute because it's so easy to jump right into Acts, and I want to, but I want to talk about a reality uh, that happens between the book of Luke and the book of Acts that I think is important kind of background information beyond, you know, being about the apostles and the Holy Spirit. And it's, and it's this restoration that happens. So the next thing I want to share with you is that Jesus restores us for ministry. Okay? I don't have time to get into, to look at the actual text. I would encourage you to read them yourselves. Uh, they are found in um, uh, John 18 and later in John 21. But there's this story about the denial of Peter. Well, P- 
Peter's denial, because Peter doesn't get denied, he denies Jesus. You'll remember the story that on the way to the cross, um, Jesus is uh, being punished and suffering, and he says to his disciples before he begins the apostles, this is going to happen. And Peter says, no way. And Jesus rebukes him for it, right? And Peter says, I will never deny you. You know the story. Well, then Jesus goes, just as he said it's going to happen. When he said it's going to happen, it begins to happen. And as it's happening, people come up to Peter and they go, hey, you're with that guy. And he goes, no, I'm not with that guy, right? You know the story. And it happens the second time. Hey, you're, and he goes, no. I, I, and then the third time, somebody comes up and says, this little girl, I think, says, right? She says, I, I know you. I saw you with him. He, he's one of them. And he swears to God <laughs> he doesn't know Jesus. He swears to God. As a matter of fact, in our Wednesday night Bible study, we're talking about it, um, how Jesus looks at Peter in one of the Gospels upon his third betrayal. He looks at him, right? And you, we, man, we can get hung up, but then here's the thing, right? Jesus goes to the cross in spite of Peter's denial, and then he's raised from the dead. He appears to the apostles. He appears to Peter, and then there's this moment before the ascension, which is why I want to, because the ascensions, we're covering it today, where he takes Peter aside. And this happens in, in John 21. Jesus basically shows up on the beach when Peter and the other disciples, apostles, are fishing. By the way, don't miss this, right? Like, um, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, and all the guys go, yeah, we'll go too. <laughs> It seems that after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared over 40 days, many times, in many ways, but in no ways consistently for everyone. So it wasn't like he was there the whole time with them, right? Like he would come and go out of rooms and out of their lives, and, and, and just whenever he wanted to show up, he would show up. I think that's a fair thing to say, because here in that story, we have Peter saying, I'm just going to go fishing, and all the guys going, well, I'm just going to go along. The power of a leader. I'm just going to go hang out. And they fish all night. In our family group Monday night, someone said, I feel like Jesus has a sense of humor. And I go, I think he does, <laughs> right? Because they fish all night, and they catch nothing. And then there's this man on the, the, the shore, and he cries out. He calls out, and he says, friends, do you have any fish? <laughs> After they've been fishing all night, right? And they're like, no. And he says, try the other side of the boat. Now, here's where I think the humor comes in. And then the man sets down. Listen to what the word says. Uh, to a fire of coals and puts fish on it. Like it's subtle, but the humor's there. They're fishing all night. They're hoping to get something to eat. They don't know this is Jesus. The stranger shows up. Hey, have you caught any fish? No, try the other side. They throw the, boat, the fish on the other side. Meanwhile, he sits down at a fire that's got embers in it, so it's been burning a long time, and he puts fish he already had. That's funny to me. Like, they're off their fish. He's got fish. Well, they pull the nets in, and, and, they, and they catch 153, right? They catch all these fish. Peter does a Peter move. He jumps out of the boat, swims to shore, right? The boat shows up about the same time, and he's like, it's the Lord. And, and then there's that whole scene set, then all of a sudden, and this is what happens. Jesus says to Peter as they walk along the road, do you love me? You, you know, you know I yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. That's his command. He asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? The third time, Peter's distraught with Jesus. Why do you keep asking me this question? Do I love you? Do I love you? Do I love you? Right? You know all things. You know that I love you. He says, and feed my sheep. And he gives him, you know, a command. 
It's important because sometimes we can believe God can't use us. Yeah? God don't care about us. Which is contrary to the gospel. That's not true. God intimately cares. But then there's this reality that even when Jesus is coming and going out of our lives, even whenever he's showing up and disappearing, even whenever we can't quite get a, even when the Holy Spirit's teaching us and fits and starts, but we have not yet received the Holy Spirit, we have these moments where we're like, I, you know, and, and a failure of denial. And an honest uh, conversation with friends, we might say, gosh, I, I know I've denied Jesus myself in different ways, in various forms. And I know he's made eye contact with me. And then we let the guilt of that set on us. Yes, it's true. But here we have this moment with Peter where he's intimately concerned that Peter understands Jesus' involvement. Right? That Jesus isn't giving up on Peter. This is going to become a huge issue because if you miss it, and I think if you miss that Peter has this moment with Jesus, then every, everything, even now, becomes more confused. Because now Peter's listening again. Now he's ready again. Yes, you know that I love you. You know all things. And he's ready to hear what Jesus has to teach or to say, to do. So Jesus... Uh, Prepare, restores us for ministry. That, by the way, is the purpose, is the purpose of, in some ways, our salvation. Like, we are saved for his good pleasure, but we are saved for his, his good purpose as well. Which is why it's so crazy that many times in our lives we'll say, I, I know Jesus, I know I've been saved, so I'm going to go do what I want to do. And it's um, not the whole gospel. Because we're saved from sin and death, but we're saved unto his purposes, his people. We call him Lord of our lives. And so we have the opportunity to, um, to be restored for ministry. And by the way, I've said it before here, but ministry, don't let that be confusing. That's just serving the Lord. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about, you know, you're going to be a preacher, you're going to be a missionary, you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be, a, you know, whatever you think of as a, 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 mis- a ministry. You know, you're going to serve in the children's ministry or in blast or nursery or whatever. I mean, it, it just means we're going to be open and available to serve the Lord. And this is why we're restored. That we might serve him. That we might be witnesses for him. So we all have the opportunity. So I, w- I just want to say plainly, like, I, I want to say very plainly, don't ever think that you've done something that God is not willing to restore and use you. As a matter of fact, my belief is that many times what he restores us from, he calls us to. That we become the very people that can speak into a community that think they're forgotten by God because we know we aren't forgotten by God. And how else do you do that? But through your own experience. Right now there's this Me Too movement, right? Powerful movement. But there's a couple things that work. There's the issue of me too, and there's the reality that, yeah, it's me too. That's witness, folks. Me too. This is the call that we all have in our lives, that we can, we can walk into a group of people who are hurting, who are broken, who are forgotten, and say, yeah, me too. The difference being that we would then point back to a Savior who can make all things new. Okay, so getting back into the book of Acts now, I just want to take a little caveat through the restoration of Peter, because it's huge, I think, for Peter and for our own lives. 
We're going to turn and talk now in uh, verse 5. Discipleship is immersive. It's an immersive experience. This is what the word says. On one particular occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak to you about. Because John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now see, there's the thing, right? There's the proof that the Spirit's not yet been fully poured out on the church. And so he says, go there. Well, there's two commands that I would, it's worth pointing out here. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. <laughs> That's the command. <laughs> don't leave Jerusalem, but wait, right? Sit tight until you receive the gift of my father, promise that I've told you about. So the Father promises to you, I've told you, he promises to you, don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. And he says that John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or the way, actually, it's really interesting to read it, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit soon. There's no days reference in there. Jesus just says, sit tight and wait because you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit soon. There's a couple of thoughts, right? Maybe sooner than you think, right? But if you're impatient, soon enough, yeah? You will, be, you will be baptized. John, you remember he was out in the desert, right? Proclaiming, make straight the way of the Lord. Repent and get ready. The Lord is coming. And he was baptizing people for the repentance of sins, that my sins would be washed away, to get ready for Jesus, to get ready for the Messiah who's coming. And this is what the proclamation of John was about. A couple of things about the baptism of John is, and by the way, you can say baptized into or baptized in. It's just a little thing, but the reality was, from, from most evidence, it was some kind of full immersion baptism, right? Like, I'm not hung up on this as a doctrinal issue, but I'm just saying there was this dipping under the water and coming up as a new creation. We still practice it today. Full immersion baptism. Starting with the um, John and continued on because of the Great Commission. Go therefore and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making disciples and teaching to obey everything I've commanded you. Right? So we still do this. We baptize people. So we get that. We're like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Don't talk, I get it. Baptism, I've seen it before. I've seen it done. I've, seen, I've been there, right? Jesus says directly, just like you will be baptized, just like you were baptized by John, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think the form, the mode, and everything else is the same. This idea that you will lay back to yourself and be raised to new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll be fully immersed. <clears throat> One of the things that um, we do whenever we baptize people normally, and I've, I've watched many pastors do different ways, is um, you either, I usually put a little, uh, what is it, like a handkerchief, a clean one, over people, everyone gets their own, and then baptize so that water don't go, because you're fully immersed in the water. I've seen other pastors have people hold their own nose, and the pastor grabs their arm here and, you know, does that. But you're fully underwater, and if, if you aren't prepared for that, like you're going to be, you know, sucking in water. The same imagery is used here for baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Maybe you go, man, what's the big deal? Immersion? I, I, sprinkling's fine. So what? Be sprinkled in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no. It's poured out on your head. It's unexpected. I watched this video the other day of this, um, this person who went into a room and opened the door and they did the prank with the bucket that dumped on his head. <laughs> Maybe that's the Holy Spirit, you know? You're not ready for it. You guys got me, right? 
Oh God, you trickster. I thought I would just believe in Jesus, but now I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. Listen, why? It's a big deal. Because Jesus says, don't do anything until you've received the Holy Spirit. Because John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, remember that Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John, right, says you must be um, uh, baptized by the water and the Spirit, right? Um, that both things are born, born of the water and the Spirit, right? It's the same idea. So there's something tied in here. That upon belief in Jesus Christ, we are fully immersed in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy One of God. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it explains why so much, I think, of what Jesus is doing uh, through his church, the way he's doing it. So discipleship is fully, fully immersive. Now, I, I do want to say it's figurative and it's literal, right? Like, like you start out following Jesus and, and you think, oh, it's going to be this little thing in my life. I'm just going to go to church on Sundays. I'm going to do this thing, right? But if you're following Jesus and the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, your life will never be the same. It just won't be the same, right? And you will, even when you're not being obedient to God, you will sense the disobedience because the Holy Spirit is in you fighting that you might be obedient to God. And if you're like me at all, you sense that battle that rages within, right? Like, like that you know you're a sinner that needs to be redeemed, but you want to be a more redeemed sinner than you are. I mean, you feel that in your life? Like, you, you feel you're immersed in the Holy Spirit of God, and then you want to walk out, the scriptures say st- walk in step with the Holy Spirit. You want to step out of line with the Holy Spirit, but you sense God's full immersion pulling you back into his purpose and his will for your life. That there's this fully immersive component to it, and it will change everything forever. So, I've thrown out some possibilities. What do you think? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Here's the next thing he teaches. This is really interesting, actually. Verse 6. So when they met together, the disciples, the apostles, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's his answer. There's more of his answer. We'll read that in a minute. But that's the short part of the answer I want to talk about for a minute. So upon all this profound teaching of the Holy Spirit, upon all this instruction that God, this divine instruction that God, that Jesus has given him from the Father, given to the apostles about the kingdom of God, they ask this question, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom? And this is what he says. And this is, I think, so instructive to us in our time now. He says that God's timing is God's timing, right? That's exactly his answer. He says, they say, is this going to be the time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Is that now, right? He's telling them about this. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, is this our time? Is this our time? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates, or another way he says, the seasons or the days, right? Which is interesting. That the Father has set by his own authority. I want to talk about this for a minute. There are seasons of life. There are days of life that are appointed. They're decided, right? But we don't get to know how much of my life, maybe how much of your life do you spend wanting to just know? I just, what's this season about? Or what's the next season about? Or maybe what's the, what was that last season about, you know? When is this going to be over? Or the day. 
There's some big moment coming in your life, some day, and, and you know, you're, you're expecting it. Like, they're asking, is this the time? Is this the time for Israel? He doesn't say, no, there is no time. He says, it's not for you to know. So the seasons we don't know and the days we don't know. You ever played a game with yourself? Man, if I had known then what I know now. <laughs> no, you weren't supposed to know then what you know now. There's purposes in everything. And God's timing is God's timing. Look at what the word says. It says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority. So the second thing is, the Father sets the times and dates. He sets the seasons and days. It's his business. You can, you know, fair to ask, well, how, how inclusive is this, right? But anything's God's work. I think it's fair to say anything that's God's work is God's business. So we spend time, maybe you don't, I do, wringing my hands for people. God, when will you do it? When will you do it? What's going to happen? What's going to go on? When, when is this going to happen? And you anxious, anxious in prayer, right? But God has divinely appointed, the Father has divinely appointed seasons and days for his purpose. Then last, why? By his own authority. I love that. By his own authority. There's a couple of words going to come up. We're going to talk about another one in a second here. But there's this word that means the ability to do, right? The, the ability to do. And there's this word that means the right. You want to say, God, you, you know, this is the funny thing about lamenting God, right? We lament God as if God doesn't have the right to do it. <laughs> How does he do it? Jesus says he does it by his own authority. God, Jesus says that God, the Father, sets the seasons and the days for his purpose by his own authority. It's even sometimes easy to sit in here and go, well, you know, for a good purpose. For his purpose. For his, because it's his authority. So we have this reality that God's timing is God's timing. That is a, is a struggle and a comfort at the same time. Something else that's interesting, by the way, though, is that the apostles, having all this revelation from Jesus about what God is doing, are immediately concerned about Israel. <laughs> now, you've probably heard us talk about before. They wanted political power, you know, like, you know, let our leaders be elected now kind of thing, right? Like, my guy in charge, your person not in charge kind of an idea. But it's only funny if you don't think about the reality that in verse 3, Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. Like, it's only weird that in their minds, when Jesus says the kingdom of God this, the kingdom of God that, they're going Israel this, Israel that. It's only for us. It's not for anybody else. That's crazy. Until you think about our own lives and how often we go, it's all about us. The kingdom of God has days and times and seasons. No, it's all about me. It's all about my life. It's all about us. It's all about our people. It's all about my leader. It's all about my power. He says, no, it's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. One final thought here. This is the way they ask the question. Lord, catch the word, ruler, master. Lord, are you at this time? And then, second part of the answer. It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What? Did you catch it? I'll say it again. Lord, 
are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I think there's a little bit of thing happening there, a little bit of a play. They're still going, Jesus is going to do all the work. That's, Jesus is going to do all the work. And they're like, Jesus, are you now going to restore Israel? Are you now going to fulfill the kingdom promise? Are you now, you, are you going to do all this work? And he says, not if you know times and dates, but listen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is my next point. The Holy Spirit is power. I told you a minute ago that here God's talking about, Jesus is talking about God's authority, right? The right to do it. This is dunamis, the power to do it. We are given the power to do what God has called us to do. This really is the transitional moment. There's this command of the Great Commission, and there's this um, instructions that Jesus gives, but there's this moment of realization that this, the apostles and the disciples are still saying, Jesus, will you do all this work? And he says, you're going to have the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We asked the question in the Easter series about why leave it empty? Why leave it space? Why, why, why leave now? Like, that's another good question to ask. Like, why, why leave now, Jesus. Because of God's good purposes, and he is going to use the people through the power of the Holy Spirit for his own purpose. Hope you see that. If you're looking at verse 8 with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. You will. See what's happening there? They're going, Jesus, what are you going to do? And he goes, no, you're going to do it today the time of the holy spirit we'll set and we'll go god when are you going to do something when are you doing something? he says no you're going to do it you're going to do it through the power of the holy spirit you're going to be the, the what is that the way we say like my hands and feet right like you're going to be the one to go out and proclaim the good news you're going to be the one that's going to be empowered by the spirit of god to do god's work which is why they need to wait in jerusalem that's the command wait there he says, you're going to have power. Well, then my next question is, power for what? Right? You hear lots of stuff about the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you don't. If you're in a different circle, you don't hear it. I hear a lot of stuff about the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the power of the Holy Spirit for or about? Well, in this passage, but you'll receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's one of the purposes, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So you will be a witness for Jesus, if you know Jesus. Like, that's the, the implication here. Or, to say it the opposite way around, that uh, if, you, if you aren't a witness for Jesus, you might not know Jesus. Is that too harsh? Like, if there's a way that you can keep closeted Jesus in your heart, like if you could just keep him trapped up inside there, you might not really believe Jesus. You might not really know him. But he says, you, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. Not, well, you can be. You will be my witnesses. Well, does that sound crazy? Because you're like, well, I, you know, I, I don't know what that means. Listen, what do witnesses do? They see, they hear, right? 
You see and hear things. That's one, these are literally just the definitions of, of um, the martyr, which is the witness. You see and hear something. You, you, you blepo it, like you observe it, you behold it. Then you declare and remember it, because it's not enough to see it and hear it and go, oh, because you know in your heart. But then you, 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 you say, yeah, I saw that. That's the Lord. You become a witness to what God is doing in the world. Here's another way to say declare it. You remember it. Were our hearts not burning within us when he walked along the road? Like, that's our job. Witnesses. Witnesses. Uh, that's our call. Also, and this is, I was just thinking, like, really practically in our lives, believing in Jesus Christ brings about the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to overcome the sin in our life. Not by our own power, though but by the power of God. We've never been led to a place that he will not give us the power to get through if we're listening to his spirit. And I'm not talking about in some fantastic way. I'm talking about in the real struggles of life to say in that moment, he gives you the tool, the equipment, the, the presence of himself to get past that next hurdle in your journey of spirituality or whatever, however you want to say that, your journey of following Jesus. So we have the power to repent <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. We can change our direction because of the Holy Spirit. A couple more things I think. He gives us the power to believe because witnesses believe what they say. Witnesses don't usually like lie on purpose, right? You, you, if you're a witness, you, you believe it. And so the Holy Spirit is the power of faith, the power to believe. And then the last is the power to obey. We'll talk about that one in a minute. But the power to obey, which is kind of tied up in those other two as well, repentance and belief. Okay, so that's part of it. Then this is what he says. But you will be, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. I heard this talked about a lot of different ways. I'm going to give you the Bill Dempsey translation. Off the books. Seriously. Bill Dempsey translation. <laughs> okay. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. You know where they are? They're right almost in So you're going to be witnesses right here right where you stand, right now. Like, you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, right? The very first place they are, they're going to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. That means wherever, whatever's going on in your life, you're going to be witnesses immediately where you are. That's the truth of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit being on you. You will be my witnesses right where you are, right? The second, Judea, friends, relationships, uh, family, right? The people that you know. You know my witnesses, the people that you know. In your life, it'll be the witness for God, for the people that you know. Samaria, the enemies that you don't like. You will be my witnesses to people that you can't really stand to be around. Again, not optional. It's going to happen. Right? So you have right where you are to friends and family, people that you can't stand to be around, and then, for good measure, the ends of the earth, the edges of the earth, which means everywhere else. <laughs> That's where the witnesses happen. That's where witnessing happens. All right. So there, there's the command, and there's the location. There's all these places in our lives to be witnesses for the glory of God, of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Now, in that moment, here it is again. He's taken up. He makes his way, the word says, before their very eyes, and the cloud hides him from their sight. They stand there, blepos, intently looking. They're, they're totally engaged in this moment with Jesus. He just dropped all this knowledge, and then he's ascended into heaven, and they're standing there, and then look at what happens. As we're looking up, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. This ought to sound familiar, especially if you read the Luke account of the resurrection. Do you remember? Two men stood beside her, or beside them. And this is what it says in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you uh, to heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So some instruction there. In, in Luke, it says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? There's this reality that in these moments of God's profound uh, revelation, we have a tendency to stare at it as if the event's over, like as if we're supposed to figure something else out. And he's like, no, that's over. We're doing something new. Why you look for living among the dead is the question was asked in Luke 24. And then here, the same, the same description of men in white, take it for what it's worth, says, why do you stand here looking into heaven? And that leads us to our last verse, which says, then they returned to Jerusalem. And I, I love that. Then they returned to Jerusalem. What does that mean? Obedience, right? We are called to obedience. And, and they were called to obedience. After all the revelation, after all the truth, after all the witness they've seen, I mean, Jesus ascended into heaven. No matter how excited they were about that, they were called to do what he said to do, which is go back to Jerusalem and wait, Right? Do you see that? Then they returned to Jerusalem from a hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. I want to share with you a little bit about, I did some digging around on the Mount of Olives, and uh, I, I was amazed. Matter of fact, I printed off, I'm not going to read it to you, but I printed off um, all this information on the Mount of Olives. It's so significant to Israel, the Mount. As a matter of fact, um, it was a place where all the forefathers, the important people, not just, I mean, not just like prophets and that, but, but actually um, like business people and anyone who wanted to be close to God would be buried on the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, I think I have a picture. Let's see if I have them in here. Yeah, this is actually a picture of the Mount of Olives. There's so many, I think there are 150,000 uh, graves estimated on the Mount of Olives. And um, some have been destroyed. There's been development over the years on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives also is a place of lament for Jerusalem. This is the place where Jesus took them up and looked over the city. Do you remember that? And he mourned for Jerusalem and for the destruction of the temple before it happened. He was telling the disciples, which is really interesting, by the way. Here's another picture of the Mount. You can see all that. It looks like rocks. Those are all um, uh, graves right? This is, would be the place. On top of this is where all the um, Church of the Ascension and all these churches are built because of the location where Jesus ascended into heaven. See, there you go. That's a better view of all the tombstones that overlook. And then this last view here actually is Google Maps, which I think is and you can see this is about the view. It would have been a little higher on the mountain probably, but it's about the view you'd have. Of, the Dome of the Rock right in the middle there, if you can see it. You can look down, you can see over the entire Kidron Valley. And you can see all this holy place that Jesus had lamented over and said, it will be destroyed. And so you have that. 
this holy place where they live, or they, they're hanging out with Jesus. He walks them up there again, and, and he gives us instruction, and he ascends into heaven. And here's what's striking me about it. It would have been so easy to go right here. As a matter of fact, by the way, one of the things I found out is that the reason that so many Israelites are buried on the Mount of Olives is they believe that's where the return of the Christ will happen. And they want to be as close as possible to God for resurrection, right? So the people who had a lot of money, a lot of influence could get buried on top of Mount of Olives because that's the closest you can get to being raised directly to God. It's as close as physically possible. I find it striking that in this place of death, but of hope, Jesus does not go down, but he goes up. You see it? He takes the disciples. Why? Why take them to the Mount of Olives to teach them this very last thing? Why? You're going to obey me. Do you remember, the, do you remember Jerusalem that I, I mourned over? You're going back. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're looking over the Kidron Valley. Is this the time? Is this the time? You are going to go back and be my witnesses. And then he goes up and they go down to the valley to wait. That's powerful. It's powerful. Maybe, um, you know, in our lives you can feel that way, those seasons, but they are for God's purpose. And indeed, it is in this obedience that they are, they become very powerful witnesses for God, as we'll find out, as we'll find out in the book of Acts. Here's what, here's what I want to say about obedience. Obedience is unique, right? So we're called to obey, and I think this is what we get wrong often. God's commanded things of his people for sure, and we ought to hold each other accountable for commands. But obedience is a quickening of the spirit when you're, when you're relating to God and you know what you're called to be obedient in. And so many times pe people in their lives will want other people to be obedient to God and what he's calling them to be obedient in. Does that make sense? But my obedience is about me and your obedience is about you. And the truth is that without the acts of the Holy Spirit, we could not be obedient to God. But with his spirit, we can. See, we make uh, following Jesus complicated when it's not. As a matter of fact, I said after Jesus reinstates Peter, he gives some commands. But here's the last one. Peter starts getting worried about everybody else. And he says, you know what, Peter? Don't worry about it. You follow me. That's what you worry about. So I don't know where you are in your life right now, but I just want to invite you to that next step. Follow Jesus. I don't know w what it is for you. I want to pray that we can take that next step of obedience wherever it is, and I'm going to pray also for seasons and days that he has for us. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to hear uh, from you your living word, to hear from your spirit's instruction and to then know you more fully. I pray, Father, that you would quicken our obedience. I pray, Father, a prayer that for all the times we come and say, Jesus, when are you going to do something that we, that we, I pray against our neglecting of your Holy Spirit's power to do something in your name. I mean, not for our glory, but because you have showed us and called us to do it. I pray for courage and faith in those moments of obedience. I pray for folks who maybe don't even know you as Lord and Savior and they just sense your spirit saying now, do it now, and that you would be overpowering 
their existence in that moment. I pray that they would come to know you as Savior and Lord. I pray for seasons and days of life, Father. Help us to see, see them as they are. We love you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the good news. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells in us in faith. May you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.